I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. This month's single-serving selection, Wonder Twins, by Mark Russell and Stephen Byrne. Podcast powers activate! <laughs> Form of <laughs> monkey. Shape of uh, I, I didn't think this far ahead! Uh, so, uh, we are back, folks, and this month we, of course, are talking about the 12-issue comic book miniseries, uh, published by DC between 2019 and 2020, The Wonder Twins. Written, of course, by Mark Russell, who did the brilliant reboot of The Flintstones that we'd previously covered on the show. He did Billionaire Island, Prez, Exit Stage Left, The Snagglepuss Chronicles, with art uh, by Stephen Byrne, who has done comics on Doctor Who, Green Arrow, and recently did a Justice League Power Rangers crossover miniseries. And this was published under Wonder Comics, which was kind of a pop-up imprint uh, under the purveyance of writer Brian Michael Bendis. This is something that DC's been doing lately, kind of these little corners of the DC universe that they give to certain creators. And uh, coming to talk to us about this pretty amazing miniseries is a past guest of the show, co-host of a number of podcasts, including Waiting for Doom, a Doom Patrol podcast, DC OCD, The Gary Show, and the brand new Dial F for Flanger. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, <laughs> Mr. Paul Spot Hicks. On. Glad to have you back. Welcome, Paul. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure to uh, talk about Mark Russell, finally. Uh, he's been my... Uh my comic obsession since I read The Flintstones, actually. Probably before that with Prez. Um, yeah, just dynamite stuff. And I think he's a different voice in comics that we really uh, deserves attention and acclaim. And, uh, yeah, moving the goalposts, I think, for other people. I think so, too. I think there's some interesting stuff. He has a lot of stuff to say in all of his work. So diving right into it, Paul, if you had to synopsize... Uh, this comic book in a paragraph or two, what is Wonder Twins all about? Uh, it's the culture shock of some aliens coming to Earth and finding about our earthly ways and the, uh, the things that we accept as normal that seem very strange to them. Um, and they get involved with uh, the League of Annoyance, which is uh, the Legion of Annoyance, which is the sort of minor leagues of the Legion of Doom. Uh, and, uh, yeah, uh, they almost see the world uh, dramatically improve, but it gets stopped by the superheroes. <laughs> That's, that is the <laughs> thing that I kept coming back to with this, is that I kept thinking about this as kind of a potential blazing saddles for superheroes. There is a YouTube video that I discovered last year uh, by a guy by the name of Infranaut, and it was called you couldn't make blazing saddles today in quotation marks. Yeah. And it's about that very thing. And he makes an interesting point in it, which is that blazing saddles is the most effective satire that has ever been made in film because it murdered the genre that it was making fun of. <laughs> and that he was talking about this thing that we called the wholesome West, 
where all of the uh, characters and townsfolk were these upright, clean people who were really racially homogenous and <laughs> lived in a town that didn't deal with any of the ugly elements of that sort of Old West historical era, like racism or settler colonialism or the genocide of the Native Americans. That just stuff didn't exist. It was just good, upright people against guys in black hats. And they're all like, oh, well, good day, sir. And Blazing Saddles obliterated that subgenre of Westerns to the degree that nowadays, if you make a Western in that style, it comes across like you're making a parody. That what Blazing Saddles did is inject the racism of those sorts of town folks, the the stupidity of those folks, the fact that everyone in town had the same last name, and it just (laughs) obliterated it. And I look at the Wonder Twins, and I wonder if that might have been done for superhero comics, at least traditional superhero comics, because this is a brutal satire. Right. And the thing that we've, you and I have discussed off mic a million times is the thing that you don't ever want to do with superheroes is you don't want to bring them too much into the real world because the the issue is, are they really solving the problems or are they just propping up the status quo? And I think Mark Russell's work on the Flintstones was the same thing too. It's how do you use this hyper real cartoony universe of characters that you're familiar with to talk about what's real. And in this instance, what's real is the world is broken. Superheroes don't do much to help other than maybe they'll stop the occasional meteor, but uh, they won't stop the 2 million people being incarcerated in the United States. They're not doing anything to help that problem. And this kind of lays bare the ugliness of what living in uh, what living in the DC world would actually be if they had problems like our, our world did. Yeah, it's carrying over things that when you read a superhero comic, and I just want to say right off the bat, I mean, everyone knows this about me, but if they don't, and this is the first episode, I love superhero comic books. But I also kind of recognize that superhero comic books really require you to put some blinders on. Right. You don't want to ask questions like, why doesn't Batman just use his money to solve poverty in Gotham City? Why doesn't Superman just use his tremendous powers and strength to feed all the starving people of the world? And the answer to that question, obviously, is because you wouldn't have a story then. And that superhero comics usually try to create an idea of a world where everything has stayed the same, except there are superheroes and superpowers and aliens and wizards in it. And I think Watchmen sort of went into that idea that the world wouldn't be the same. You wouldn't have the same president. You wouldn't have the same fashion sense. You wouldn't have the same basic history. And what ends up kind of happening here is that I don't, rather than Watchmen or even something like The Boys, which goes really far in that direction of, of making the superheroes outright villains, they don't do that in this book. Then... They're not using analog characters either because uh, Zan and Jaina, the Wonder Twins, come from the planet Exor and are working as interns at the Hall of Justice (laughs) for the literal Justice League. So they're actually interacting with Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman. But they're not turned into straw men either. So this is the Justice League, but they are recognizably the Justice League that you would read in the Justice League comic book. But it's asking a lot of hard questions about them and the world they live in if we take real-world problems and put it into it. So you have mass incarceration. You have the fact that people can get buried under debt. They can get exploited under late capitalism. They can be destroyed through things that have nothing to do with you know talking gorillas or death rays or time travel. And that Superman and these other ones, as well-meaning as they are, kind of have some blind spots. 
<laughs> yeah, uh, it, it really is uh, <laughs> the warts and all world. And yeah, I, I I come back to this that this would never be published under Paul Levitz's reign of um, DC uh, editor in chief because you know it, they never allowed their characters to be uh, ridiculed or um, I guess shown to have feet of clay and you know this is I'm, I'm glad this era came because it, it really does point out you know the fallacy of um, superheroes make the world better because uh, you know they still have the same problems that our world has um, you know the cor- corruption uh, like the meteor there's a meteor coming to earth the Justice League all fly off to fight it and you know save the day and you know the natural response from a reader is, "Oh, this happens millions of times. The Justice League will save the day." And on Earth, the media create this panic, um, and everyone just starts rioting in the streets because they all think they're about to die. Um, and the media take no responsibility for it. And you know that's just you know beneath the Justice League, and it's happening right there. And there's you know no attempt to address that. Yeah, you know, it always reminds me when I was looking at that parts because throughout this book. Um, they're, the media organization of note is called Lex News, and you can yes. imagine what they're. <laughs> it's a it's a very yeah. bald Fox News analog. <laughs> right. Clearly, they have they have a, a panel of pundits like that's like the Lex News and Friends. One is Punditron Five Thousand. <laughs> uh, what one is uh, Strawman? Yeah, the one is Straw. Yes, Strawman. He's like the Alan Combs yes. of, and- of Hannity and Combs, where he's kind of the weak devil's advocate guy and there's basically a judge judy who's also bald and looks like uh, lex luthor but it's it is of course the same type of naked disinformation that's around to be totally sensational and to effectively tell the opposite of the truth and that pervades the whole uh that pervades the whole thing because you're so used to especially in the realm of superman you're so used to having the media and and people's awareness of superheroes in their universe represented by say like Lois Lane mm-hmm. who's writing a piece about Superman saving stuff in the most glowing way possible because Superman's always there to save the day there is never the idea of there's all this blowback or there's things that they're not paying attention to or injustices that Superman is just completely blind to um and, and this sort of lays bare the, that the world is pretty pretty shitty. Yeah. It, would, it would be great to be able to think about Superman saving the day, but it still would be pretty awful if, for example, you uh, ended up in a third world prison somewhere because you were body swapped uh, by a supervillain. <laughs> yeah, and, and what I kind of get to it as well is just that the biggest villain in this entire series is Lex Luthor. And he is never on the radar of the Justice League, almost his entire storyline. The only people who bring him to justice, even temporarily, are his interns, who managed to maroon him in space for a while <laughs> by refusing to give him the landing coordinates to the ship. Uh, because he goes into space literally to escape a natural disaster and leave everyone else to his fate in a very Elon Musk-style way. <laughs> and... He is a he is a monster, but technically most of the stuff he doesn't he does in this thing are not illegal. Most right, of the stuff right. he does is perfectly normal under capitalism. He um, takes advantage and basically blackmails a scientist under a mountain of debt and potentially taking his house, all of his property, his money, his patents away from him. Gets him to basically work on his evil plans. And says, no, you work for me forever. It is literally that scene from The Simpsons, the um, the scene where Homer Porce puts the Maggie pictures all over it. But right. it's like, don't forget you're here forever or something like that. Right. Um, 
it's there is no escape and you're just like this is monstrous and this is literally being done to this man by superman's arch enemy and superman is doing nothing about it and superman wouldn't do anything about it is kind of the point because um if lex took this guy in his debt to court lex would win and that's the monstrous thing and then you really need these uh, Wonder Twin characters who kind of operate in the same way a lot of Golden Age of sci-fi characters would, where an alien lands on Earth and is horrified at what's normal to us. Because these just seem like problems that were solved a long time ago on their home world. And and I think the the piece of it that's a fish out of water, is it is fish out of water story, obviously, that gives the reader the, the POV to reevaluate sort of the superhero story. But what I find is entirely fascinating is that the Wonder Twins are also teenagers. And so there are all of these escapades that they're happening that are just about the normal things that teenagers have to deal with. And um, is Zan is the brother, right? Yeah, Zan, Zan, Zan's a brother and Jane is a sister. Uh, so Zan is... They both are. They, they they both want to be liked. They both want to be successful. You know, they want to join the. They want to uh, be part of the science fair or whatever. And uh, Zan is kind of he's pre- kind of the Hank Venture yeah, of this. He's very preening. You know, he's uh, he wants to be popular and he often falls short. But I love the. I should probably try to find it here. I love the idea that oh yeah, so there's this thing where they're both going on parallel dates yes. because that's one thing that they want to. They want to experience dating as being part of uh, humans, and uh, the sister chooses a guy who ends up being a supervillain, and he's a complete chud and an asshole and screams at the waitress. His supervillain name is literally the Red Flag. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And uh, Zan goes to, uh, is asked to go on a date by a girl who he finds attractive, and finds out in the middle of it that she's basically just trying to get back with her ex-boyfriend. And in the he they start making out in the middle of the movie, and he goes to the movie with his gun cop. Which yeah. is a, fa- a well, fantastic- she's making out with her ex boyfriend yes. who showed up at the date. Exactly. And Zan is just sitting there next to and both of them watching the movie. And at the end, he's so happy, and he's happy for her because she got what she wanted. You know, she and got he back got together with and her. And he ex. got what he wanted too. Yeah. He's like, I had a great time. And then Jaina's uh, date, the red flag, starts making fun of Zan because he seems to be like, Hey, everything's great. This is oh, she got together with her boyfriend. The movie was awesome. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, Oh, you just got friend zoned. And he's like. Yeah, that's fine. Because yes. he just goes, if we were actually dating, we're 17. We would have broken up weeks from now. But now I'm going to be your friend for years. That's so awesome. He's like, win for Zan. And I just, what I love about Zan is that he's both kind of a naive, lovable doofus, but also emotionally mature beyond his years. Right. Where in a lot of ways, he is more advanced than a lot of the humans on Earth. He He's kind of, he just kind of goes with the flow of a lot of this stuff. But at the same time, is is kind of this wonderful paradox right of these contradictions that he's at one time both somebody who's clearly based what being an american teenager is off of watching teenage movies in a sort of sense right like i'm gonna be the cool guy with the shades and the cool nickname who comes in with a cool pet and in his imagination he's got sun he's got like sunglasses on walking through the halls of the high school and he's got a pet alligator <laughs> and he's just like i'm gonna be the coolest guy ever i i kind of love that but again he doesn't bothered by any of this sort of insecurity that a lot of these other people have and I think that Jaina is basically the voice of Mark Russell in this book, that she's mm, a lot yeah. more introverted than Zan is, that she's somebody who is 
it's hard for her to find friends, so she takes those friendships very seriously. Right. And she's very loyal in that sense. And I love the fact that the teacher puts her in charge of doing the school announcements. And that other teacher's like, wow, this is some teacher of the year stuff right here. Well, that's if it works out, of course. Otherwise, <laughs> it's just needlessly cruel. <laughs> I, I think what is, uh, we kind of, well, I want to take a step back, like a 10,000 foot view, because I didn't know that the Wonder Twins characters were created entirely for the Super Friends show. So this isn't like they're mining decades and decades of other DC Comics writers who have taken these characters through different iterations. What they have done is, it's it, from the little that I've seen, the Wonder Twins characters are kind of really silly ciphers for ki- for young kids to sort of put themselves into being in, on adventures with the Justice League. And what this does is take, they're still silly, there's still very goofy and funny things about them, but they're not just the, ki- the tag-along kids who just happen to be in the right place and cr- create a puddle so the bad guy can slip on and help Superman. But they might also do that too. Yeah. <laughs> they, but I love that it takes all of the goofy... Anyways, there, there are these ciphers for the audience and they're not all that interesting, but in here, they're clearly the most interesting because they, they're in on the joke and the, and, the, and the Justice League is not in on the joke. <laughs> I, we have to point out that uh, Zan's catchphrase when he bursts out of a bubbler and attacks the Legion of Annoyance is total refreshment, which <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> made me laugh for minutes. <laughs> I love that. I love how he clearly wants to sort of create himself. And I think in the way that teenagers are like, you're at a new school, so I get to be a new person now. Right. And I, I love so much about this book because... It has this biting social commentary, but it's also tremendously funny. And it could be really dark when we're talking about it. Essentially, you mentioned this before, Paul, that a big part of the plot is supervillains try to save the world and the good guys stop them. And everyone acts like it's, you know, they just blew up the Death Star. Everyone's cheering. That's a really dark moment. And when I read it, it hits me in my stomach in that way. Yet it doesn't feel depressing. It never feels like it is trying to out-dark a darkest thing because I think in part of Stephen Byrne's art style is so light and fluffy. There's an element that almost feels like it's drawing back to a classic kid-friendly era of these characters. And I was the almost thinking an Archie. It almost There's an Archie Comics vibe to how, how I feel that they're drawn. Yeah, there's something very approachable and fun about it. And I think it takes some of what would otherwise make a book potentially feel like a diatribe. If you went full on dark, if like Mike Mignola drew this, it would feel wrong. But (laughs) when it's light and fluffy and it just lets the ridiculous undercurrent, uh, underbelly, I guess you could say, of the DC Universe shine through, where because they are not the Justice League yet, they're the Justice League's interns. The villains they're dealing with are people like, you know, the malingerer, who I guess his superpower is that he he feigns illness or injury to get out of work. There's um, the praying mantis. Uh, there is a guy. There's a there's basically an, an old white lady who has a cell phone who just apparently her power is that she feels threatened by black people and <laughs> doesn't know that her cell phone is a phantom zone projector. Um, there's all these different characters in it um, that are just so weird and strange, like the red flag who goes out on that date with Jaina. I guess he's just a toxic dude, bro, <laughs> who is just a terrible human being who sends you 50 texts if you just ghost him. 
yeah, and 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 the the in the in this universe, like like you see Lex Luthor, you just don't really have any interaction with like the A tier villains. No. Joker never shows up or anything. Even there's even a there's even a, a potential where you think that Gorilla Grodd's going to show up, but uh, it's just a ruse, you know. It's Jane in disguise. It's, it, it, I find that to be really funny is that you never have this time when it's like, oh well, we got you got to follow Batman into Gotham City. To for them to help him like take down Bane or something. If Batman's there, he's just speaking in one sentence, and he's just sort of backing up Superman. You know, that, that's it. That's we do see the Legion of Doom mixer at the second best right. Western hotel. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Oh, I do love watching them. Oh God, it was just a lot of fun because you get to see the idea of bad guys trying to network. Like that was the place that uh, Jaina's. Uh, her date takes her the red flag because he's just like oh it's just a work thing and it's clear that everything with this guy is some kind of nagging or a flex or something like that because he just treats her like garbage and I do love that this guy just kind of gets left in his place he thinks that he's a jilted lover but he was never even that close because he's just a piece of shit <laughs> uh, so when he does show up for a supervillain battle later I do kind of I do kind of enjoy that uh, we should mention that the Wonder Twins have a mix of both the best and worst superpowers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because they're both shapeshifters. So Jaina can turn into any animal and Well, any animal that she's aware of, right? Yeah. Because yeah. in some part in it she's she's asking the uh the Justice League computer, which is great by the way. It's a it's just a it kind of looks like a I can't even describe it. It's like a smiley face on a big bat computer type screen. And uh, it it clearly doesn't get used very much, so it's really happy. It's horribly that the, outdated that the, that the Wonder Twins are talking to it, and she's looking up critters from other like other worlds, so she can have potential things to change into, which I thought was a really cool touch. And Zan can transform into any form of water. I think at one point he proves his worth to the high school hockey team by becoming the smooth <laughs> ice that they're skating on. Um, he can turn into a Mostly a tidal wave is kind of his big thing right. with the catchphrase of total refreshment. And um, they can only do this transformation if they bump fists. So they need to be around each other to activate those powers. And I kind of love that because it's utterly ridiculous in the way that 1970s cartoons are. But there's something endearing about it. Because there's something innocent about it. That you're hanging out with your, your brother or sister in matching purple leotards, and now it's time to bump fists <laughs> and activate your superpowers. And it's just, it's it's wonderful, and it doesn't it doesn't tear all this stuff away. I think the Wonder Twins have only appeared in DC Comics continuity a couple times, and I think sometimes they've always had this sort of some creators have had this misguided idea to try to make them dark or edgy to try to fit in. And this one just jettisons that all together and just lets them be fun and lets the world that they're in as the, be the contrast by having the world be kind of broken and ugly. But these superheroes grew up on Earth and they're just kind of used to the idea of, yeah, we throw bad guys in prison, then they escape and we beat them up and we throw them back in prison. <laughs> now... You guys, do you guys ever get cold called by someone who's got your phone number from some, you know, somewhere you registered or things like that? Yes, I do. So I'm, I'm yeah. well aware of those kind of call centers. Yeah, well, we have them in Australia, and it always sounds like the person talking to you, their soul has gone. Like yes. they are trapped in some sort of hell limbo, and this is what they have to do. And this comic explains it because they're all prisoners in Lexicon, <laughs> which is the uh, LexCore 
call centre, uh, con- you know, convict facility. <laughs> so, you know, that explains why they're so unhappy, because they're all stuck there selling things. And you know, the truth is, I don't know if this is the case in Australia, but the prison labour is a thing in the United States. And Yeah, no, I... we don't have it to that extent. <laughs> oh, God, it's awful here. Um, oh, Jesus Christ. They're basically private prisons, and even a lot of public prisons, too, are essentially indentured servant factories right, that right. we have in this country that... They can get around labor laws when they're dealing with prisoners. They can pay them horribly lower than the minimum wage, sometimes like a dollar an hour, sometimes like 50 cents an hour. It's different state to state, but it's not good anywhere. Um, You can have them fight wildfires like they did in California last year. Many of these people probably shortening their lives. And when they get out of jail, they don't qualify to become firefighters that actually get paid well. They can risk their life now for pennies. Um, but again, what you end up having is that the, there's becomes this, this interaction between the private prisons and the private sector where they make money by taking a, taking a chunk of cash to basically loan them a bunch of prisoners for cheap labor. They pay them almost nothing. The prison gets a huge chunk of cash. So putting them in a call center like Lex Luthor does is not unrealistic, (laughs) uh, that there are major companies like McDonald's, Amazon, um, Starbucks, all these companies use prison labor to one extent. And oftentimes you get a real incentive because those same companies make a bunch of money. They lobby to get stiffer sentences for things so people can stay in longer to get that cheap labor because then you can exploit a person who uh, can't quit, who can't form a labor union, who can't complain, who you can punish by sending a bunch of bad messages about them back to the prison and they get punished for that so you essentially have someone completely within your power so the idea of the lexicon call center is barely an exaggeration (laughs) over real life and that's what's that's again that part where lex luthor is the biggest monster in this series that is never on the radar of any superhero Hmm. and it never comes close to getting punished and that's the part that just it's oh it's brain breaking yeah and it 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 occurs to me that this is uh, I was wondering if there is a if there's a Mark Russell through line, and I kind of think that there is. I, I, I'm I'm trying to. I didn't reread the Flintstones after I read this, but I'm kind of imagining that the uh, that Mark Russell is effective thesis about sort of our place in the world is yeah, there are things that are very broken. We're born into various ways in which the world is broken, and we have to do our best. And it's really just the connections that you have with other people that make it worthwhile being here, that make all of the things that should collapse our hope and create despair. This is the thing that lifts us lifts, lifts us out of this. And this is 100% the, the thesis for the Wonder Twins as well, is that it's about creating those connections. And Jaina's friendship with uh, Polymath uh, this, this super super science daughter who kind of does a heel turn and then back again. I'd uh, say she does a face turn yes. and yeah. then gets defeated. Right. <laughs> that's that's the thing. We should get into the great scramble because that's a big yep. plot of, yeah. of the first volume, which is that um, her father is essentially being blackmailed by Lex Luthor into working for him, that he has all this debt. And at that mixer for the Legion of Doom, uh, her father ends up talking to the scrambler who's this low-level supervillain who has the power to swap brains between people. So if he gets close enough to you, he just locks eyes with you and he can become you and you become him. It's actually one of the most awesome prison escapes I've ever seen in some. It's that is really fun. Yeah. yeah. It's where he, uh, <laughs> he, uh, 
bring the prison guard who's sort of abusing him uh, comes over and he swaps and he's suddenly in the prison guard's body and the prison guard is in his body in the cell and he goes, oh my God, oh, get out of here. And he's like, okay, okay, I'll let you out. And he does and he goes in himself, closes the door. And so basically now the prison guard in the prison guard's body is now locked in the cell and he just <laughs> walks out the front. I just, I love it. But the scrambler uh, starts networking with her dad and leaves him the card, uh, his, his calling card, because he's an ex-stage magician. And uh, he has a plan to fix the world. And one of the, the frustrations that he constantly has, the Scrambler, is that supervillains don't seem to want anything. They're just involved in this sort of fake fight with superheroes, and it's all just a game to them. And they're not actually trying to change the world. And what I kind of love is that his master plan is to use a supercomputer that Polly ends up making for him to amplify his powers so that in 30 days he will send out his power as this crazy electronic pulse that will randomly swap the mind and body of every person on Earth. And you don't know who you're going to be tomorrow. You may wake up and you're suddenly, uh, you know, a political prisoner in a third world country. You could be a child working in a sweatshop. You could be a refugee fleeing a war. And a minute ago, you were like a CEO of a company. And if you're a billionaire, if you're part of the 1% and in the worldwide scale, that's less than 1%. No matter where you go, it's down. Yeah. And as he says, the people who have all the incentive to change the world or all the power to have none of the incentive to. So... He giving you 30 days to make a world where if you wake up in that body, it'll be okay for you. It's going to work for you. And it's interesting because it's getting back to my philosophy classes at community college. This is John Rawls' veil of ignorance argument. Mm. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Yeah. But the idea is that to try to come up with a, a rule for society, if you're going to make a law, that you should put up a veil of ignorance, that you have to completely shut out whatever your personal identity is and say, I don't know who I am. I don't know how much money I have. I don't know my race, my gender, my economic class. I don't know anything about myself. So what, what kind of rules do I make? And I go, okay, well, is, I don't know, child labor bad? And I go, well, what if I'm a poor child? You know, and you basically try to use the muscle that would ordinarily be used for self-interest to make you go, well, what if I'm, what if I am the least among us? And you start arguing from that perspective. What if I'm the person that faces the consequences? What if I'm living in a house near the river that you're dumping sewage into? What if I'm the person who lives near that cancer cluster? What if I'm the person who's going to catch the brunt of climate change? And then you make the rules based on that. What if I'm that person? Because I don't know if I'm that person. So essentially, he's doing with superpowers that experiment writ large. Yeah, what, what if what if there you, you could make a world that worked for everyone who wasn't you? Exactly. Right. Yeah. That, you know, it's going just fine for the people who have the power. So yeah. he basically holds the world hostage and everyone is scary. Everyone flips the fuck out. And what I love about this, what I think is is probably the most... The most revolutionary thing about this book that that blew my mind was that normally when these kind of revolutionary figures are set up to be the bad guy in a superhero fiction, whether it's, you know, Killmonger in the Black Panther movie or it's the Flag Smashers in the Falcon and Winter Soldier, um, they kind of turn them into straw men. They give them a moment of uncharacteristic violence 
that doesn't seem like that at all because it feels like they're afraid the audience might side against the hero. Right, right, Who, rather than trying to make the world better, is just trying to, like, keep it exactly the way it is right now. As as Scrambler said, as an ex-magician, that the magic trick has the three steps. Uh, The first step is the promise, that you say you're going to do something crazy. The second step is that you you seemingly break the laws of the universe. And the third step, that's the one that gets you the applause, is where you turn everything back to normal again. And he says, why do we always turn things back to normal again? They should be better. So he's basically forcing all of the people with all of the power to say, you're going to have to address all of these problems, not just insulate yourself from these problems, but really solve these problems for everybody because you don't know who you might be tomorrow. And then they're defeated at the last minute. And there's this, this <laughs> wonderful scene where the president is about to sign this massive omnibus bill that's going to end mass incarceration and child poverty, that's going to finally address climate change in a meaningful way, that is probably going to solve everything that they could think of, that if I'm going to be a poor person tomorrow, that I might be okay. And then word comes in, hey, the scrambler's been arrested. And they all throw the papers up in the air. Like they just blew up the mothership in Independence Day. And they just walk away and leave that thing unsigned. And if they just sign that, the thing is, you save the world, you should still sign it. And they don't because they think they've been saved from that legislation. And it is the most gut drop moment I've had in a comic book in a long time. Yeah, it made me feel sick. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit. But I mean, they've spent so much of the comic you know, pointing out, you know, not not uh, unsubtly, but they're pointing out the, you know, the problems with the world and the injustice and the things that are wrong. You know, there's one point where the scrambler does a test scramble and there's a, a guy complaining about the cost of a soccer ball and he's suddenly chained to a, a bench making a soccer ball as a little boy. You know, <laughs> so there's that sort of, you, you know what was at, at stake and you, we know what we lost. And you can look out the window and see it in their own world, you know, this inequality and this, uh, you know, the rich constantly improving their lot for themselves at the detriment to the rest of the entire world. Yeah, I think there's a, that, I love the fact that there's, that one of the things that this does, that Mark Russell sort of does is, and of course this is just for a screed for Mark, for Mark Russellism, you know, which, uh, which is great. It's fantastic. Oh, it's entertaining. Serve it up, man. But he, one of, there's so many quotable things. I mean, one of them is the true moral struggle isn't between good and evil. It's between pettiness and generosity. And I was like, well, that's a, that's a something that, you know, it could have been Gandhi who said that for God's sakes. And it, instead it's coming through in a comic book that's about, you know, two silly teenagers from another planet. And and Polly brings that up, too, because when Jaina figures out the identity of where the Scrambler is operating, operating out of Polly's house, and they're just ordering takeout and kind of <laughs> hiding out there, that the Justice League is looking in every super secret spy bunker and every rogue nation in the world, <laughs> and they're in the middle of the suburbs. And what I love is that, you know, Jaina brings that up. It's like a lot of good people are going to have their brain swapped too. They're going to be separated from their family and people are going to die. And she just says, people are already dying. The world is just used to watching us die. The status quo has killed more people than any attempt to fix it. Mm -hmm. And I've been just thinking about that. And it's the kind of, the kind of death that we accept, the kind of exploitation we accept on a regular day is kind of horrifying. Like, so I just decided to look it up and I said, you know, in the United States, according to the National Institute of Health, 26,000 people die in the United States every year because we won't give everyone universal health insurance. 
That's every year. That's like eight and a half, nine elevens. And because they're not dying in an explosion in another country, we we don't care. You know, it's it's this element of it where we we allow ourselves to be numb to that. The idea that there are a bunch of good people, but there's a lot of good people that just let this stuff happen because it doesn't affect them. And we're talking about not good and evil, but pettiness and generosity. It's easy to be petty when something doesn't affect you. You don't have to be actively cruel to let cruelty happen. And people do that every day. And that's the part of it that goes beyond what you expect, you know, Superman to intervene in is that, Superman will save you from that meteor that's about to hit the world, but he's not going to do something about the insurance company adjuster that turns down somebody's cancer treatment that would save their life. This, both of these people are dying needlessly in a preventable way, but superheroes aren't going to do anything about the person who was just thrown out on the street because they couldn't afford their house payment because they just got laid off. And there are just as many people that die that when, when, so, when somebody dies of exposure when they're homeless, they've been murdered by our system. And Superman's not going to stop that. So you go, well, what's the point of having this godlike guy if he's not going to protect the vast majority of people who die from completely preventable, banal things? And not because, you know, Gorilla Grodd showed up with an army of death chimps and started killing people in the middle of Central City. Yeah, and it was uh, it's funny because uh, you know we I get my homework assignment to do this because this was not something that I had read before, and there was a point. Uh, I mean, Paul, you said it as like there's a point when you start getting a sick feeling in the pit of your stomach because you're like, oh, this is not like a fun little dalliance into the DC universe where you can escape because there's it's this cartoony you know facsimile of a world that's not nothing like ours. Um, I think what is great about this is that it this could be a total drag. The uh, the idea of saddling these major like really quite grim things like could heavy stuff. Yes. Um but they are always they're always balanced by the fact that the 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 toys aren't broken, right? Mark Russell does not break the toys because you come back and you say, you know, you have um Jaina talking with Superman and and Superman, you know, the problem is not this just trying to save the world. The problem is to not go crazy worrying about it, you know, uh, because, of course, Superman knows that terrible things are happening. But he has also has to he's he also is empathetic and understands how awful it is for other people. And he has to find a way to live through that. Um, but, and, and then in the other bits, you have like, <laughs> what is it? Is it is it uh, the Wonder Twins are hiding out and. Um, they're surprised that oh they're hiding out with polymath and they're surprised that uh, Batman eventually finds them and Batman's response is well what did you expect I'm the greatest detective in the world I'm not gonna find you <laughs> right I love that they they he still understands that there are these characters that you know a lot about that you want them to behave in a certain way um and they still they can still be relevant to the story and not just be these aloof idiots that are clearly fucking up what they're supposed to they're, they're they should be doing but they're not doing because they're only focused on the you know, exploding wind-up penguins. Exactly, you know? exactly. There's, I mean, I get a little bit of the outsider stuff because I'm not an American. So, I mean, I look at your healthcare system and it, it's terrifying. Yeah. Because uh, I live in a country where, you know, healthcare is free. Um, you know, and I, I live in a town where I have a, you know, a very well-equipped hospital that is not very well patronized. So, you know, knowing what I know, if I was in a big city, I would drive the extra three hours to the small hospital to be seen straight away. Um, 
Yeah, and the number of times I've gone up to the hospital, you know, I've got something in my eye or I've done something and, you know, I'll be lying down in a bed in half an hour and they'll apologise for making me wait. And I'll walk out of there with, you know, medicine and everything and it won't cost me a cent. Oh, um, I'm going to cry. But, <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things that amazes me is, you know, people are trying to fight for that in your country and there are people going... No, that's not fair. Why, you know, I've got it good and I've had to pay to have it good. So why should people get it for free when I had to, you know, I've overcome this, you know, this mountain in society, but they haven't. So that's not fair if they get to do it without the struggle that I had. And you see the same thing with, uh, you know, uh, university costs and, you know, education. And, you know, most of the legislation in my country is done by politicians who were uh, educated for free, yeah. uh, went to university for free. And, you know, they... They got the benefit and, you know, they could make it so other people can, but they're, they're choosing not to. Yeah, um, yeah and, when you make you something know. a universal right, it stops being treated like it's a charity and it just becomes a thing we all get. Like, we all get uh, education from kindergarten to 12th grade here, but... After that, we act like another four years would just be this horrible impediment. It's just like four more years of schooling on top of that. Oh, my God. What would we do? <laughs> um, it's crazy. And it's it's awful. Like I have eczema that I get on my hands, that I get these rashes. And um, I get this, this ointment for it. I don't get breakouts of, of eczema very often. but And because of that, the tube of ointment will last sometimes two or three years before I have to get a refill. And I've never paid more than 10 or $15 for this, but I took it in to get a refill this time. They wanted to charge me $115. Whew. It's like, Jesus, do you have to fight a fucking dragon to get this thing? <laughs> it's, it's, and it's completely arbitrary because... It's like a chicken, chicken sandwich at Popeye's, I guess. That's exactly. That's why it's so expensive. It's, <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's so bonkers because this is this way, and we use the same arguments that a lot of people use in this comic, which is just like, well, you know, this is just the way we do it. You know, maybe our way's okay too. And it's like, it's really not. And because the person saying, you know, our way's fine too, is a person who's usually doing pretty well under the yeah. way that things are running. And it's crazy. It it makes you feel like you're going mad because in my country, um, the people who want to keep healthcare private are all of the powerful people who get to make that decision. Yeah. And yep. generally the people who want to change it are pretty fucking rare in the hall halls of power. Yeah. And you just feel like you're going crazy a lot of the time. So it makes sense to tell that sort of story with a pair of aliens that not only are they supposed to understand and, and take in this world, but as superheroes, they're expected to make the world better. And they see all the ways that it's bad that no other superhero seems to be picking up on because they're just used to it. Yeah. And I, I'm just wondering if there's some sort of sea change in comics with this sort of attitude, because I've been reading uh, uh, Tom Taylor and Bruno Redondo's Nightwing, and uh, Nightwing has basically come into this massive inheritance, and he's living in Bloodhaven, and the problem he sees in Bloodhaven, you know, sure, you've got the corruption and the criminals, you know, consorting with the, the mayor's office and things like that, but you have lots of poverty, and his, you know, his thinking now is, I've got this money, how can I address poverty? And it's going to be uh, an amazing comic to watch that unfold. And it really is that argument of, you know, if Bruce Wayne really wanted to improve the world, he'd use his, you know millions of dollars to make life better uh, for people and you know comics don't usually address that you know they they make the world better by you know defeating evil and fighting things and you know but 
Wonder Twins and Nightwing are one of the you know the first two comics I can think of that say, well, the status quo here is what's being defended and maintained. So, you know, I'm really interested to see if this catches on with more uh, comic writers and more creators, and particularly because uh, Tom Taylor's about to start the new um, Superman book about the son of Kal-El, and, oh, you know, cool. he's promised that that's not going to be... It's going to be, what's it like to be a hero today? What's the things that are actually important to, to battle? Um, so I think we're going to see more of this coming in, and I, I, I welcome it, because, you know, you can certainly change people's minds by showing them, you know, pointing out the inequality and, you know, the hypocrisy and stuff like that. And I think you really have to. I think that the idea that the world could change seems to be just so alien to people. The idea that this is inevitable, that things are going to suck. That is a mindset that you first have to break in yourself and go, no, we can redesign this. Everything. It's like, you know how Thor says in, in uh, I think it's Avengers Endgame, all words are made up. Well, <laughs> every part of our society is made up. Somebody invented that and we can redesign anything we want. That we don't have to have a society where people are crushed under debt. We don't have to have a society where all these people are locked into a cycle of prison and recidivism because they can't get an opportunity to better themselves. You know, like, what was it? The the villain, uh, Baron Nightblood, who is the alcoholic <laughs> vampire character. A.K.A. Druncula. Like, Count Druncula. <laughs> yes. Yeah, he is, he is the saddest motherfucker because he is trying to be a supervillain without falling back into his addiction because he drinks the blood of people who've had a drink or two <laughs> and he gets drunk that way. So he's like stalking people outside of restaurants that he knows don't serve beer. <laughs> and then he gets beat up by the wonder twins and they learn real quickly that one, there's two there's because there was a hockey game that night, there isn't enough space in the regular holding cells. So they have to take him to a private Lex prisoner holding center. <laughs> and this is one of the Mark, uh, Mark Russell, beautiful things because he does background Easter eggs like nobody's business. And the, the tagline for this place is for all your human storage needs. <laughs> <laughs> and they take him in there and they're like, oh, okay, here's your, your thing. Like when you go to a restaurant and it buzzes you when your table's ready, this thing will buzz when it's time for his arraignment and you come and pick him up. So they're like, I don't know. Both of them feel really bad about this. It's like, we should feel bad. We just beat a man with an addiction problem up. And now we're going to throw him in a cell and they leave and they come back and it's time for his arraignment. And he's surrounded by all these dead bodies. Cause he was thrown in there with all the drunk people from <laughs> the, in the general holding cell from that hockey riot. Yes. <laughs> and he just wants to get better and nothing, nobody will let him get better. I think he says something like you won't let me, you know, heroes and villains are all the same. You won't let me be anything that isn't useful to you. Mm. And <laughs> it's just heartbreaking because there is a non-vampire, non-alcoholic equivalent of this dude who's going through the same bullshit cycle with cops. Yeah, yeah. And it, you just you, your brain breaks at it. There's a there's another bit that I think is is interesting. This after the scramblers arc, there is uh, Polymath's dad when he was a teenager created Commander eighty eight, which is a like the first sentient computer program. But he senses that Commander eighty eight is becoming unethical and so he turns him off and through a series of stupid things that happen 
uh, he gets turned back on and like tries and learns about the internet and tries to take over the world. But, but his entire but, attitudes are yes. based on being stuck in 1988. And this is like this is perfectly mirrors the stuff we talk about now, which is like holding culture in the 80s and uh, only only letting the 80s happen. So he starts changing everything in only the world that you would understand being this like hyper masculine guy in the 80s, like men get, getting the world to manufacture muscle shirts and sending them all around the world. And so you've got these rioters coming out demanding I don't know, it was all the stuff that they have. But what I love is that the, the, the coda uh, for it is – uh, Milo, who's the creator, you know, says, "Okay, this the problem is the problem is that it's a program that just refuses to be updated. It refuses to acknowledge that the world has changed, but assumes that the world was at their best when they were at theirs. In a perfect world, we would all update ourselves regularly, but as we know, this is not a perfect world. Um, and if we can't update the program, then we have no choice but to shut it down. What I love that this is a statement about the people who would have a problem with you." turning flipping the wonder twins on their head of it being like how dare you take the thing that i loved when i was seven years old um and make it into your woke screed it's about the thing that we talk about nostalgia all the time it's not about it's it's not about you uh you are stuck and you need to update yourself that's the way it gets better you know yeah and i just i love how woefully outdated this program is uh that he's essentially a 1980s skynet and he's nullifying same-sex marriages and forcing people to invest in blockbuster video and he's he's promising uh coal jobs to people that will destroy his enemies and it's it's just this utterly ridiculous thing with all these like these these pudgy middle-aged white guys going on riots in the name of this computer program and i love what zan and jana say at the end about it and they go and Zan is like wow for a monster a, love, a lot of people really love the colonel and she goes they never really loved him they loved the monster he allowed them to be yeah and it feels like the most succinct version of the explanation of trumpism yeah that i've probably seen that you've got permission to be this terrible person that you would hope the changing society would have kind of kind of squeezed out of you by then that you would have been forced to change but it's like, no, I'm going to be terrible, and I feel empowered by my ability to scare and upset people. And I, you know, all it takes is a powerful person to give you that permission. It wasn't that these people were rioting because um, they were changed in some way. It just unleashed something that was already in them that they probably held back because yeah. they were like, wow, if I did that. I'm a bad person. And they go, no, you're actually the best person. You are, you know, it, unleashing people to be their worst selves. And it's it's pretty biting stuff. And I'm and again, like you said, Paul, I'm shocked that DC let them publish this. Is it below the radar enough that, you know, no one noticed or. But I mean, yeah, Didio brought in Mark Russell, and Prez was full of this sort of thing, um, though less polished. Um, but and, you know, we've seen with Billionaire Island and things that came after this that Mark Russell <laughs> will continue down this path very, uh, you know, merrily, um, making us think and entertaining us uh, tremendously, and you know, with a great sense of humour built in. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot here, and yeah, it's not easily. Uh, written off, and it's one of those comics that makes you think for weeks after reading it. 
Yeah, and it makes you feel, which is something that a lot of times right. you don't right. get, especially because a lot of stories being told about these characters that try to be kind of four-quadrant stories um, don't want to alienate the audience, potentially. And this is something that kind of aims both barrels at the toxic element of fandom. And if you go on YouTube and search for reviews of this miniseries, you will find a lot of, of scary thumbnails from videos of people <laughs> screaming about SJWs forcing their whatever's down your throat. And the worst people on the internet hate this miniseries. Hmm. And I feel that a certain, sounds like good press. <laughs> I'll take it. You know, I'll take it. And I'm like, well, you know, maybe you just see yourself in the bad guys. Yeah. This is a series that asks you to ask, some hard questions about superheroes. It doesn't necessarily give you an easy answer either, which is, you know, when we enjoy these stories about these colorful, amazing people who beat up criminals and throw them into prison, we try to pretend that they're nothing like our prisons and their world isn't anything like our world, even though all the tropes are still kind of there, you know? And I kind of love that it's, it's taking that risk and it's saying, you know, hey, this book is not going to be for everybody. Yeah, and we've scratched the surface of what's in it. I mean, there's a lot more in it that's funny and appalling than just the things that we've mentioned. Um, yeah, so, yeah, the, it, it's full. It's packed. It's, um, you know, a 10-course meal of this stuff. It's it's shockingly dense, and that's the stuff that I really sort of enjoy about it. Um, so I guess that leads us to... The question we may have already answered, is the Wonder Twins worth your time? It's worth your time. It's worth your money. I've, you know, I bought all the issues. I bought uh, the trades and I would, you know, buy a hardcover if they brought it out in one edition. <laughs> 12 issues. That's all there is. 12 issues. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it, it definitely is. I uh, I have the, the digital versions. I downloaded the digital versions. And then I went to my comic book store and then ordered the hardcover versions because I'm like, ah, they really need to... They really need to show uh, DC that this is the kind of stuff that's really quite good. And yeah, thank you for saying that, Paul, that uh, for anyone who has not read this book and listening to it, there's a lot more than already the broad swipes that we've talked about. And it's some of it is just a joy. Some of it is just really hilarious and a joy to watch these two kind of lovable doofuses uh, sort of roll their way through the DC universe in ways that are fun. Yeah, yeah. I I say absolutely as well. I'm a huge Mark Russell fan. Uh, Mark Russell is in the tiny echelon of comic book creators for whom I will buy their work completely blindly. I don't need a title. I don't need a... uh, I don't need to know what the character is or what the genre is. I will just put down my money and say, I don't care. And that's a tiny group of creators. That's like Darwin Cook, Naoki Urasawa, Brubaker and Phillips. It's like, that's a level of trust from me that I don't give to a lot of people I really enjoy. I don't even mm-hmm. give that to Alan Moore because <laughs> he has some stuff that's not so good. Um, but Wonder Twins is great. Yeah. And and this is the thing too. It, it's got this incredibly light and fluffy art style, but it's also incredibly funny. And it's, I'm just, on one level, I'm a little worried that somebody might think after this episode that it's essentially like being forced to sat down and getting lectured at. And it's not that at all. No. no. I mean, I know what that's like because I've seen the faces (laughs) of people that I've talked to about this stuff before. (laughs) So uh, (laughs) I know that 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 isn't always fun, but this thing is incredibly funny. Even when when the satirical stuff is particularly savage, Mm -hmm. it's cut with this 
love of puns and weird, goofy, sort of Venture Brothers-esque, strange superhero stuff. And the world around it is is commensurably like like ridiculous like there's a weather report where there's like d- death clouds yes. coming and that's just one of the things you turn on the tv in the dc universe and there might be death clouds sweeping in or interdimensional interdimensional attack or something and it was like oh boy there's traffic on such and such streets because you know aliens invaded or something. maybe zan might be reading yeah. a copy of laser eyes magazine <laughs> laser eyes uh, this book is is shocking that it exists but it's upbeat and it's fun and it is not joyless. It's not smug. It honestly, the fact that it really has Superman, but doesn't make a straw man of Superman. It lets Superman make his best argument yeah. for who he mm. is. And he still comes across as someone who's incredibly kind and smart and empathetic and understanding and patient that you see why he would be an amazing mentor to have. But at the same time, he's a good really awesome dude who does have some blind spots that again young people can spot and <laughs> superman is willing to own that and I, I i can also see why that would be a point where a lot of comic book fans would oh, generate some ire they really don't want yeah. that they don't want to think critically about things they like <laughs> so oh with that uh paul i want to thank you for joining us on this show if people want to find out more about you and uh, Waiting for Doom and the other podcasts that you're working on, including your new one, where can they go look? Uh, it's all on the Waiting for Doom feed, so uh, sitting there um, at uh, waitingfordoom.com, and uh, I'm on Twitter at reading underscore Hicks, and there's you know different show accounts on Twitter too for our shows. But um, if you start at waitingfordoom.com, you'll find everything that um, I've got going on. Uh, make a sales pitch. Let us. What are all your shows? Oh, okay. So DC OCD uh, was to do with my love of DC events and um, having so many of them and sort of being a bit religious about collecting them all. And so I thought it would be fun to uh, t- team up with Mike, who does Waiting for Doom with me, and we would go through every single event and have guests on and uh, review and then rank them on a metric of what makes a good event. And, uh, yeah, we've just uh, sort of come to the end of that road for now because we're, we, one of our metrics is uh, impact and legacy, and we are too close to the present day to assess the impact and legacy of things like uh, death metal at this point. So, um, yeah, we're going to take a f- couple of years off with that one. Oh, we also did Waiting for Doom, which is about the Doom Patrol in comics mostly, and uh, we've almost covered just about every single thing that exists for the Doom Patrol in comics now, so that's also uh, taking a bit of a pause. Uh, we're hoping for more Doom Patrol comics soon, probably with the TV show coming back for Season 3. And uh, I do The Gary Show, where Mike and I just talk about uh, stuff that's going on with us um, that's fairly entertaining but uh, you know a bit more personal and Dial F for Flanger is my new one where uh, Flanger is my nickname with, that I gave myself in one episode where someone said what's what would your nickname be um, and I don't know why it's stuck <laughs> but uh, yeah so Dial F for Flanger I just interview people so or talk to people and you know hoping to have um, you know people with different experiences in uh, geek culture and things they've got going on uh, and just sort of dig into that just because uh, you know there's lots to talk about in you know and I need a platform to do it I need to talk to people absolutely you guys are great I love your shows and you guys have such an easy camaraderie between each other there's just an easy chemistry that I just find you know and a self self-deprecating sense of humor I find you guys just utterly awesome and I hope more and more people subscribe to your show oh thank you so again, and we want you to come back, Paul, if absolutely. you would, please. 
So Excellent. again, Mr. Paul Hicks, thank you for joining us on the show. And a very special thanks to our episode sponsors, of which there are now 15 this month. And and uh, spoiler alert for the audience at home who's not, has the web feed, there's actually one of them sitting in the room right now. So, Ooh. clap, clap, clap. Please clap. <laughs> Please clap. That's the saddest <laughs> sentence that any famous person has ever said. Uh, so, special thank you to our episode sponsors, Larry Brunswick, Margaret King, Tim Batson, Dan Neidecker, Don Tuvey. Zuri Russell, Sterling Taylor, Tom the Belgian, Wim the Belgian, Misa the Barbarian, James Brucker, Gus Lindgren, Jem Newman, Carol and Dave Brulette, and Kelzone. And if you want to become an episode sponsor, please, please, we would love to have you. Go to patreon.com slash radio versus the Martians or go to our website, radio versus the Martians.com and click the green button on the right side or if you're on a phone, the bottom of the website. I also want to take this time out before we end. Um, we're going to provide a link. If anyone who's a listener to the show who's interested in joining our little community that we're growing to join the Radio versus the Martians Discord server, yes. uh, we will provide a very soon, probably before this episode goes up, a link on the website as well to our Discord server because that's a growing little piece of the community. And if you want to talk to us when we're awake at three in the morning about uh, what bothers you about comic book covers... That's the place to do it. Or just the strangely ever-present hot dog memes that are <laughs> yes. happening on there. <laughs> but yeah, if you if you were welcome, if you want to join us, you are welcome to do so. Thank you guys. Uh, we'll catch you next month. Radio versus the Martians is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. This podcast is recorded in beautiful Valverde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Doran, and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music is written and performed by James Wetzel. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And you can always find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. of the emergency at the Ajax dump in Gotham City. It's time to put our XOR experience to use. Wonder Twin, Twin Powers, activate! activate.